Welcome to the Student of the Game Fire Podcast with your host, Danny B. Leaders. A leader can be an individual or a group of individuals who inspire passion and discipline in others. They encourage and guide teams through challenging times to create an inspiring vision of the future. Effective leadership is about social skills, not power or control. Most will take the time to listen and learn about their members and their unique qualities that they possess. Why do I bring this up? It's because leaders don't necessarily have to have bugles or hold rank. It's something that you'll have to work at regularly throughout your career, regardless of what level you reach in your organization or what industry you are in. Different teams, projects, and situations will provide different challenges and require different leadership competencies to succeed. So, you will need to be able to continue to apply these leadership characteristics in different ways. Just continually attempt to keep learning and growing. For this episode, I had the honor to talk shop with Chief David Rhodes from his journey into the fire service world, the individuals he surrounded himself with, the various ranks and station assignments he's had, the Georgia Smoke Diver program, and his famous keynote speech from this year's FDIC. Chief Rhodes' insight, experience, and ability to communicate is what makes this man a leader to me, and hopefully many others. I hope you truly enjoy this episode with as much fun and insight as I did. Thank you, Chief David Rhodes. You know, there's really been little focus on the mental health effects of poor leadership. We tend to want to talk a lot about PTSD because we can blame that on an incident that's beyond our control. But we don't want to talk about the root cause of the majority of stress that causes us issues. Organizational vindictiveness, discrimination, favoritism, and exclusion. I know you. And I know that you aren't looking for credit. You're not trying to take someone's job by your contributions. You just want to do your job. You're committed to the service. You just want to contribute. You want to make a difference. Unfortunately for us, not everybody is like that. And your enthusiasm, your professionalism, and your competence are a threat. A threat that unintentionally exposes complacency, laziness, selfishness, and incompetence. Because of that, you come under attack. You become a target. And the crabs reach up in the bucket and they try to pull you back down. When people are intentionally preventing you from contributing and having influence, it is a form of mental torture for people like us. All right, Chief Rhodes, how are you, sir? Good. How are you doing? Good, good, good. Um, For those that, well, I'm sure many of us know you, um, but... uh, Many might not know how you got into the fire service. So would you please share with us how, how that came about? Yeah, I, uh, I had finished high school and was working full time at a land surveying office 
and I was still trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Did I want to go to school? Did I want to go to, go to work somewhere else, whatever. And I'd really enjoyed the, uh, land surveying, uh, job. Cause it got, we were out in the field most of the time. And then I would come in, I might spend a day in the office drawing up the, uh, plats and, and all that. So I kind of had the best of both worlds. And, uh, I had been leaning towards, uh, either the police department or the fire department or EMS or something in that area. My grandfather, um, was a police chief in one of the small suburb cities of, uh, Atlanta. And, uh, kind of had that on my, on my mind. And then I thought about possibly, uh, you know, going to EMS route because, uh, I was definitely in the generation of the emergency squad 51 era and, uh, had that on, on, on my brain too. And, uh, the, the local fire chief there in Conyers, uh, Jerry Norton came into the survey office to get some work done. And he, you know, he had his uniform on. That's the only way I knew who he was. And, uh, we actually started talking and I told him my interest. And, uh, at that particular time I was kind of leaning a little bit towards like maybe paramedic or something like that. And he said, uh, he said, well, you know, in the fire department, everybody has to do both. Um, now we require you to be an EMT and this was 1985. And, uh, he said, if you'll come and join us as a volunteer, we will pay for your EMT school. And he said, then you can see if you like it and, uh, you know, you can go that route. So I went that afternoon and, uh, signed the paperwork to become a volunteer. And I, and I was scheduled to start the EMT school. And, uh, one of the lieutenants that was there introduced himself. And I, I think this was like a Wednesday or a Thursday. And he said, Hey, we, uh, we got a live burn scheduled on saturday um if you want to go to this live burn i'm like yeah, that sounds good so uh, i show up saturday morning he opens the the cabinet hands me gear and uh i ride to this acquired structure live burn and uh this is a typical like state academy class where you got you know 30 40 people you're lined up five on a hose they light some pallets in a room. You go in, put it out, back out, rotate up. Next person's a nozzle. And you just do that, you know, like five or six times mm-hmm. for the first fire. Then you go to a two-room fire and so forth. Well, the very first time I ever had on a breathing apparatus, uh, you know, you got a, a field lesson here. This is how you turn it on. This is this. Uh, I am the backup person to the nozzle. And uh, there was a – there was – paid and volunteer people in there, but there was another volunteer from a neighboring County on the nozzle and we go in, this is an old farmhouse, high ceilings and all that, uh, pine paneling. And we get in there and the room just lights off and fire comes down to about two, three feet off the floor. The guy on the nozzle freaks out and lays on top of the nozzle and just starts screaming. And the instructor yells for all of us to, you know, get out. And he was a pretty tall guy. He was on his knees and he disappeared in the fire for a second. And then he fell over. And all I could see was those two guys wrestling in front of me for the nozzle. (laughs) And and I didn't know what to do. So the instructor got the nozzle, opened it up, fire darkens down. 
And this guy in front of me is screaming. And so that instructor looked at me and said, get him out of here. Okay. And with no training, with no prior experience on anything, my only thought at that point was I haven't told my parents where I am and I'm about to die in a fire. <laughs> and, uh, I jumped up, I grabbed that guy by his, by his air pack straps. I got another guy behind me to give me a hand and we drug that guy out to the front porch and, uh, they, they got all his gear off. I was done at that point. They got all his gear off. He had some burns on his shoulders and, uh, they loaded him in the ambulance and took him off. And, uh, the instructor called us over for a debrief and we sat there and he started talking about what all happened and all this stuff. And he said, he said, good job. You know, you did a good job. Uh, thanks for getting that guy out and all. And he was like taking his gear off while he was talking. He took his helmet off and then he took his, uh, I didn't know what it was, but it was, it was a hood. He took mm -hmm. that off. And at the time my ears were like throbbing and, uh, I knew that they were burned, but I didn't know like to what degree. Right. And so he goes, anybody have any questions? You know, he get a, did a good debrief about what happened and all this and why it happened. And, uh, he said, anybody got any questions? And I raised my hand. He said, yeah. I said, what's that thing you took off your head? And he said this, and he held it up. And, uh, I said, yeah. He said, well, that's a Nobex hood. I said, what's it for? He said, it's to keep your damn son. Come here. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, he said, yeah, all right. And so I'd already had a blister and he just reached over there and like, I don't, you know, things change over time. It's 85. He like pops a darn blister and, uh, which was kind of some relief. And, uh, -huh. uh, I went on and went back in. He, he, uh, I didn't have a hood, but, uh, of course I made sure everything was buttoned up. I went in a couple more times that day. We got back to the station and he reached in the locker and tossed me a Nomex hood he said, here, put this in your gear. And after that day, I was like, damn EMS, I'm going to be a firefighter. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I did, I ended up going to the EMT school and, uh, I was only a volunteer for like probably a couple of months. Okay. And, uh, and they hired me full time. Okay. So before I even got out of EMT school, I was already. I was already full time. So yeah, it was pretty dramatic entry into the fire service, but that one incident like sealed the deal for me. I'm like, right. I love this. <laughs> right. Right. So back then at Atlanta was com a combination department. No, I was with a, a suburb then in 85. It gotcha. was uh, at Conyers and they had, they were full time, but they still had some volunteers left over from the volunteer days. Okay. Uh, they had been, I think they had been paid since, uh, like the early seventies, but there was still a group and it was a one station, you know, little, little city department. Uh, we had about 25 guys, I guess, counting okay. the chief and the secretary and, and, uh, all that. And so, um, they kept those volunteer positions for a lot of those guys because they had been around forever. And then right. we have a state pension and it allowed them to stay in the, the state pension too. So it wasn't reliant on the volunteers, but it, we did have probably 15, 20 volunteers also. Okay. Okay. Um, and they would respond they had, we had good, 
good response from them still at that point. But we had like five people on duty every day and we ran an engine and a little light rescue. Okay. All right. And then from then, that's when you knew this is what you wanted to do. You then decided to move to Atlanta or, you know, apply to Atlanta. Yes. So, um, that was 85. And, um, when I started there and then, um, we actually consolidated the little city department with the County department who was, um, larger station wise. Um, but we went from like five people at the station to a station where there was just like me and one other guy. Uh, so it was like really a rural, um, department. And, uh, I had been thinking about Atlanta prior cause we had a couple of our guys that had left that were friends of mine and they were encouraging me to come. And once we consolidated and I got to, you know, those stations that just had, you know, two people in them, it just wasn't the same vibe for me. And, uh, and I also went, uh, and of course this wasn't many in the grand scheme of what I ended up experiencing. But at the time, like the, the Conyers station would, would run about, anywhere from like five to seven calls a day out of mm-hmm. that station. And same thing, you know, it'd be like four or five EMS calls and one or two fire calls. Um, and the station I ended up going to in the County, I, I can't remember the exact number, but it was like, I only ran like 12, 15 calls in the first six months. Wow. <laughs> and I'm like, I got to get out of here. Right. So I started the application process. Um, I volunteered to be, they called it swing man. So I volunteered to be like the fill in guy for the shift. Mm -hmm. And that way I was assigned to their headquarters station. And they had like, I think they had like seven, seven guys on duty there and two would swing out if needed at another station. But a lot of times if nobody was off, then you stayed at that station. And that was good for my, for my psyche. And you ran, you know, we'd run a few more calls there okay. but uh um atlanta called me and i ended up going there in uh january of 92 and then i did 30 years 30 years there okay okay so when you joined atlanta what was the culture like there and i'm assuming you had mentors or men that you looked up to to create the david rose we see today Yeah. So I'm actually really glad I started in the small department because it was very, very, very heavily training, uh, based. And, uh, at the time I went to Atlanta, I was already rope rescue tech, trench rescue tech, um, extrication specialist, all of those, um, all of those certifications and all, and going through recruit school, um, you know, me and another guy ended up being the class leaders and, uh, you know, it's a balance. You don't want to, you don't want to stick out too much in a -hmm. a big recruit school and draw too much attention to yourself, but you also want to help because a lot of, there was only like maybe four or five of us that came from other departments, everybody else. It was the first time ever, you know, touching the equipment and all. So, uh, enjoyed the, enjoyed going through. I was, I was really looking forward to going through like the big city recruit school, but I really didn't pick up a whole lot skill wise, uh, 
other than just the specific ways they had their hose and things like that. All the rest of it was still just basic, basic firefighter of which I'd already had. And at, at that point I was already an instructor too. So I was involved in teaching basic firefighter class, but, uh, I only had to go to the fire portion of the class. And so I got out early and the rest of the class had to go to EMT school after that. Cause I was already an EMT. So, okay. um, and I say early, uh, at that time when Atlanta hired you, they would hire, they tried to keep a certain number of recruits at all times for any kind of grunt work they needed doing. So me and, uh, and three other guys got hired in January. And then I think they brought on like 10 more in February. And we were just assigned various areas of the fire department to, to be laborers. You know, mm -hmm. we okay. would deliver supplies, clean out. Uh, we, some of them went to training and, uh, I ended up going to communications for, um, several months and our recruit school didn't start until November. So almost my entire first year was bouncing around doing odd stuff as a, as a recruit. And I ended up working in the fire chief's office, um, for like the last four or five months of that, okay. you know, which was, which was very, very enlightening. But yeah, the reason they put me in communications was, uh, they asked, they asked a series of questions. They'd say, is anybody know this? And, uh, one of them said, Rhodes, didn't you come from another fire department? And I was like, yes, sir. He said, you know, anything about infers reports? And I was like, yes, sir. And he goes, all right, come with me. And so they walked me down to communications and they had just started doing infers reports in, okay. uh, in 92. So this was probably February of, of 92. They set me down at a, a, uh, Commodore 64 computer with an orange screen. And my job was to call each fire station after they had a call and take the report from them. Wow. And it was verbally given to me and I filled out a piece of paper and then I went to the computer and entered it in. <laughs> wow. And I was like, that's the last time I ever tell anybody I know anything about an infers report. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I'm curious about everything. And I had, I had worked, uh, part-time in communications in Conyers, Rockdale. I got injured. Um, I got injured one time and was out for like six weeks and I was going stir crazy. And so, you know, the communications director was like, well, you come, you know, work with us if you want to, but I would, I wouldn't do sheriff's department or EMS. I only did fire dispatching. So, uh, I was curious and, uh, had a, a unbelievable Lieutenant in the, in communications that he had been hurt on the job. And, uh, they say that, you know, he was a phenomenal, uh, firefighter, but he had, he had been in a wreck in a fire truck and, uh, he sort of took me under his, wing in there and he goes you bored over there entering those reports and he he taught me like the cad system and before you knew it i was dispatching uh nice and we had we had a cad system but uh one of the cool things was we had a uh we had this huge rolodex that was on a stand that looks like a clothes rack okay. it was that big and if you had a fire call it was indexed alphabetical order you could flip through that thing really quickly, especially if the CAD went down and it had the first, second, and third alarm assignments on it. So you had to address numbers 
That's, mm-hmm. that's what they used to use before they had computers. And uh, we still had that in there. And it was, God, it was left over from like the freaking 20s, you know. And uh, um, and that guy knew every street, every break number in the city. And he was just phenomenal. That was a Lieutenant Arthur King. And uh, he's still around. Uh, to send him a Facebook message now and then. Of course, he's okay. been retired for, shoot, at least. 20 years, if not longer. Okay. Um, but that made it a little, in, little bit enjoyable. And then the fire chief came in one day and he said, Rhodes, didn't you work at another fire department? And I was like, yes, sir. He goes, you like what you're doing? And I kind of like, Oh, it's a trick question. <laughs> you know, it's kind of <laughs> like the military. What do I say? Right. And I'm like, uh, it's okay. And he goes, you don't like it. Do you? And he's like, no, he goes, well, I need somebody in my office to uh to help me with some stuff and i but i need somebody that has been around you know a minute and you know at that time i had like seven years you know okay. on the other fire department so okay. uh, i ended up being his his aide and his actual aide got assigned to computerize the department so he was working on a project needed to be there eight to five so i drove the fire chief helped keep the fire chief schedule and uh and he was very, very, very inclusive with me on everything. Like, uh, there were days where he would go meet with the mayor, uh, that was Maynard Jackson back in the time. And, you know, he would have me go in the meeting too. And I'd sit in the chair beside him and we carried a big old catalog case full of information and emergency contacts and all that stuff. And, uh, you know, he included me, he'd be, he'd be pitching a program he wanted to do. And, you know, he'd be like, now, how many of those do we have roads? And I know uh-huh. he knew the answer, but I got pull out the paperwork and I'd be like 16 and he, so I got to meet like a lot of the, a lot of the council people and the, and you know, the mayor and, uh, and it was pretty exciting. Then I'll go to recruit school in November and come okay. out in January. I also got married in January. Um, it's pretty, pretty cool. I had been on so long. I had enough time to take off. Wow. That's awesome. So I actually got to take off during recruit school and it was when they were doing their state test and I was already certified. So I didn't have to take it. So I actually took a week off, got married, went on honeymoon and then came back and went to the, went to the station. Okay. Um, and then that started the whole roller coaster. ended up going back to the fire chief's office, um, for a couple of years. I was probably in the station about not quite a year. And then I ended up going back to his office cause he needed me back. And, uh, and I worked with him his last year and a half, I believe. And then, then I went back to a different station after he left. Okay. So okay. it was good. It was, it was a really, it was really good. Cause it, uh, I got to learn how the whole organization worked and who all the players were, you know, and, uh, and it was good. And he was a very operational minded guy. That was uh, Chief David Chamberlain, and he required me to work a 24-hour shift a month in the field. And uh, he goes, yeah, you don't want to get – and this is the fire chief talking. Now. He's like, hey, yeah, you don't want to get labeled a headquarters guy, and that will mess up your reputation and, and all that. And uh, he said, so I don't want you to lose touch with the field, so just get with the division chief and schedule yourself to work a 24-hour shift at least once a month. And that was cool. Cause I could go pretty much wherever I wanted. Where you wanted. Yeah. There was a, where there was a spot that day. 
And so I got to see like different crews and, you know, how things worked. And then of course, after, after three or four different things, you kind of figure out where you want to be. And so I would always schedule myself over to the heavy rescue or to company two or, or one of those that I like knew somebody at, and I knew they were going to run a lot of calls. And, uh, and then I ended up going to uh station two after I left the fire chief's office. And that's where I spent like most of my firefighter days. Okay. Driver. Okay. At, at station two. Okay. So w- when you got to station two, how, how was the, how was the culture at that station? It was phenomenal. It's still to this day. I mean, I enjoyed most all of my assignments, but the crew we had there was just unbelievable. And, uh, we all still, you know, still are in, in touch, uh, obviously not every day, but we still text and talk, um, just a, everybody that was there as a firefighter ended up being a captain or a chief and some even became deputy chief, but, uh, we had a really strong crew and we had a lot of calls. Uh, we were in a, we were in, um, South Atlanta near Lakewood and, uh, we weren't the busiest unit in the city at the time, but we were like in the top three or four. Okay. And, uh, and we had a lot of fires. We had a lot of first in fires and, uh, we had an engine, we had a tiller and then we had a little, uh, two man medical, um, unit, which I, I never had to, had to ride it. it. It was staffed with paramedics and, uh, yeah, it was, it was great. We had, uh, we had the Lakewood fairgrounds in our territory. We had, uh, one of the largest housing projects at the time was Carver homes. Um, and just a, a really very diverse population. There was, uh, sections that had, uh, Vietnamese, uh, in it. We had these, it it was kind of odd for the city, but we had these two huge trailer parks, uh, in our territory. And, uh, you know, all of those were rental units and that was a huge Vietnamese population. Um, we had a Hispanic area that had like three or four apartment complexes. Um, then we had the public housing and, uh, we freaking loved every minute of it. You know, it's like, that was our territory. And at that time, everybody in that community loved the fire department. Okay. We would, we would pull up in the housing project and there would be a gang battle going on. And one of the gang members would be shot or bleeding or whatever. And when the siren, you know, the federal queue comes in, it's like instant peace. And they wave you in and you take care of business. You take care of their, their buddy or whatever. And then you leave. We had to wait on the ambulance. We leave and then we would leave and then they'd go back to fight. <laughs> wow. wow. <laughs> and it, you know, it changed over the years though. Cause the, you know, towards the end, you know, I was involved in a lot of the, the uh, civil unrest and stuff. And they busted the windows out of our fire trucks and, and all that, but like that would have never, you might have a kid throw a rock at a fire truck. That was just some road road kid. Mm-hmm. They got mad at us one time. Cause we went and shut their fire hydrant off. It was a hot day and they were, you know, uh, had the fire hydrant turned on. They were just playing in it and we were having a water issue with pressure. So they sent us over to, and we had some kids throw some rocks at us that day. But other than that, man, you were, you were loved everywhere you went and appreciated. And, and that- so it was, it was a good, it was a good vibe. We had our community regulars, 
you know, that would, uh, wear us out on, on EMS calls. And, and we, we didn't have a formal program back then, but we would always try to find them help, you know, like okay. hook them up with the right social services and, and things like that. And we, we were pretty successful on our own. Of course, now, you know, that's all, they have programs for everything and different people to call and community service and, and all. But back then it was sort of like you, you were really dialed in with your neighborhood and you liked, you know, being among the neighborhood, you know, and you'd get invited to stuff. It was pretty cool. You know, mm-hmm. you'd be like, Hey, we're having a little, little deal on Sunday. Y'all come out. And, and uh, it was fun. I still, uh, I still love that territory. It's changed a lot. Um, and, you know, it's sort of revitalized uh, um, Bill Campbell when he was mayor before the Olympics kind of shut down all the housing projects and had them turned into mixed use facility, you know, mixed use like apartments and condos. And uh, and so the neighborhoods changed dramatically at that, you know, at that point. But there's still some areas that are it's like a time capsule on some streets, you know, you ride back and you think, oh, I, I remember going to three or four calls in that house right there. It looks mm-hmm. exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and there was but, a lot of elderly people um, in that neighborhood because uh, you had the Lakewood uh, GM plant was a, a car where they made cars. Okay. And there were a lot of people, they closed the plant, uh, I think in the early 80s maybe. And there were a lot of people that worked at that plant that were, you know, they were stuck and they never left. And so, you know, we had a lot of like elderly widows of, of, of people that used to work at the plant that would, uh, that would still be, you know, in those neighborhoods. Right. It's kind of interesting too, but yeah, yeah, I definitely enjoyed that time. Had a lot of fires and, uh, we ran a lot of, we ran a lot of calls and that was probably the first time I ever got good at being an EMT because we had a lot of trauma. Mm-hmm. You know, it was, it was, it was, um, a pretty rough, poor area. Um, but like I said, they never mess with us, but actually got good and had a paramedic on our crew and he taught us a lot and, uh, and we worked good together and we didn't, we didn't have a, uh, you know, we've never had the fire department EMS there. And so we were waiting on private ambulances back then and you might be on the scene 15 20 minutes waiting on an ambulance so we had to know what we were doing right uh, starting ivs and that's the only way you get good at it, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it. absolutely and, and it's like you know it's still like today we actually enjoyed the trauma calls and we hated the sick calls you know because they're just you're, you're really not needed mm-hmm. you're, you're only needed because of the failure of the whole health care system as a whole so right we were the default you know somebody's sick they got a fever they don't have insurance so they call the fire department and then of course the ambulance comes and takes them to the hospital and and we knew we knew that that happened but you know that was just part of it if you if you wanted to have fires and good calls you had to put up with that and we were absolutely we accepted it and of course some people took advantage of it but most of the time the people didn't have anybody else you know Mm-hmm. Get them mm-hmm. off the floor or whatever. So, so right. we didn't complain too much about it. Okay. Okay. And l- like you talked about earlier with how, you know, certain gangs, when they would hear the cue, they would stop what they're doing, flag you on and wave you in. 
that all goes back to public trust for the fire department. Absolutely. Yeah. So that the, the public trusts us and they allow us inside their homes where I think we're, we're like the only agency that I know of where the public really loves us. Yes. And, and for the most part still does. Mm-hmm. You know, there's some, there's been some groups and stuff, but that's not the majority of the people. And, uh, to steal some, some, some quotes from, uh, Alan Brunicini, who I knew and was a dear friend. Um, you know, he said, we are the perfect form of government because you dial three numbers to get us. We bust our ass to get to you immediately within five minutes mm-hmm. we take care of your problem and then we leave you alone we don't even get you to fill out anything right you, know, you might have right. to fill out a patient refusal we don't ask for a report or nothing we we take care of the report we ask you for your name and your phone number and then we leave you alone and we're done we are in and out in 15 minutes <laughs> most of the time unless it's a fire and then we're there and we stay and we take care we try to take care of your house and we do all that so it's like we're the perfect form of government because people people don't want you interfering with them they just want your help and they want your help you don't have to stay on hold you don't have to get transferred to another department and somebody goes uh i don't know i don't let me see. I don't think that the water department, I think the water department handles that. Let me transfer you over there. And then they get it and you go, no, that's the sewer department. Let me transfer you over there. You call 911 and, and we drive through the bay door trying to get to you. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's hundred percent accurate. hundred percent accurate. Um, so with, with you being in Atlanta and, and rising through the ranks, what would you say your greatest position was? like your favorite um well i really really enjoyed uh being a driver and and we had to tell her at station two so um me and uh, another guy who's passed away since greg wise we rotated every month like driving the front or the back and as far as jobs that was probably the most fun because you know, we were always interior on fires. We went to vehicle extrications. We didn't run medical calls um, unless it was something, if it was something close to the station, um, we might go help, you know, the engine crew or if they were out and we heard it, mm-hmm. we, we might jump it because we did. A, we didn't have all the equipment, but we did have a, a jump kit. And, uh, and so the downside was, is we weren't as busy on the truck with the number of calls, like the engine was running 15, 20 calls a day. Um, and the truck was probably running six, six or seven, you know, okay. at the time. So we weren't as busy. There was a little more downtime, but I love the truck work and I love searching and not being attached to the hose. And I love being on the roof and all that. So that was, that was my most fun. My most impactful was, was definitely probably battalion chief because I was in that position so long from 2004 until, until I retired other than, uh, a short little hiccup there about seven years ago where I went back to captain for, for, for a couple of years. Okay. Okay. And then I I got put back. So, uh, so I was, yeah, I was the longest, uh, tenured battalion chief. I think I ended up with like 17 years as a battalion chief. 
And from what I understand, you were what we would call today a firefighter's battalion chief. I hope so. I hope that's what they say. <laughs> I'm sure there's a couple that call me something else, but uh, not very. I uh, hopefully not very many. And I tell I told the other chiefs, and when we did training and all, and I was like, I want the sorry people not to like me. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing I wrong mean, with that. Yeah, right. Because yeah. I, I mean, I have to hold them accountable. That's right. Know? And uh, I don't think I was hard to work for. I mean, I did a lot of training. And it wasn't always when they wanted to train necessarily all the time, but I was very balanced and like, you know, I didn't schedule training during the freaking football game on Sunday and stuff like that. I wasn't trying to be a jerk with it, but we had our training and we had it laid out and, and, and I empowered the captains to really be a major part of that, uh, training. And that's, that's what I did is I, I spent my time with the, with the officers, because I had to have the officers on my side to be able to get it done. And I told the firefighters, I'm like, look, I don't manage the fire stations. You know, they, your captain, your mm -hmm. captain runs the station and, uh, you can, they, anybody could talk to me at any time, but I didn't get involved in the day-to-day -day operations of their fire stations. And I allowed the captains to have their own style. You know, I had a couple of incidents where, uh, one in particular, and, and I loved all the officers, but oh, uh, oh, uh, Captain Bice was one, one of my really good, good captains. And, uh, he did not let his guys wear slides in the station, even, even at night. Like, he's like, you know, you're not wearing any kind of house shoes, slippers, and all that. You're going, you either, you either going to be in the bed asleep or you're going to have on your steel toe boots. Okay. And, uh, and there was other captains in the battalion that it was okay, you know? And so I had a couple of the guys, they'd be like, Hey man, captain won't let us wear slides, you know, and it, there ain't really no rule on it or whatever. And I'm like, you need to talk to your captain. You know, you're not going to play mama against daddy with me. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I would always tell him, I say, look, you can bring me anything. Uh, don't feel worried about it. You know, you can bring me anything. And if it's something that your captain needs to address, I'm going to tell you, you need to go talk to your captain. You know, I'm not going to give you an answer or whatever, because this is his domain. Mm -hmm. And I said, but there will be times if you bring me some silly stuff, like, you know, like you say, Hey chief, you know, it, it wasn't our month to wash the walls. It was C shifts month to wash the wall. And the cat made us wash the walls. I said, the only thing I can tell you is be prepared to wash them again. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> don't, don't come to me with that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, there's certain things, a battalion, you know, certain things that should always stay at the company level. Yeah. You, you don't want it to have, get out. We didn't have disciplinary issues. Um, you know, it was very rare. There's occasionally you had to do something like if, you know, if somebody had an accident and it was investigated, and it came back that they were at fault or whatever, you would get a notice. Okay. You got to issue a letter of reprimand to this guy. So that we had that discipline from time to time, but we really didn't have many issues at all in our, in our battalion, uh, you know, anywhere that I was, um, if there was a problem, it was usually, um, it was some individual that just, you know, they were going to have a problem anywhere anywhere they were that was right. just their personality but right but we didn't really have much of that i don't I, I think you know 
over the whole 17 years of being a battalion chief, I might've had to fill out three or four complaint packages for something that got to that. And a lot of times those were like stuff that happened off duty and you're just the one that has to do it. Like a guy got a DUI or something and you have to initiate the, the, the package. And, right. uh, um, but yeah, we did, we did well, we didn't have a lot of issues and, and we had fun. We, you know, uh, my favorite, the, the, the thing that I really miss is like the firehouse meals, you know, and, uh, mm-hmm. I, I would try to cook when I was a captain, I cooked all the time, but when I made battalion chief, it was a little harder. So I would try to cook on Sundays when we worked on Sundays, you know, and keep that going. So nice. So nice. It, it was fun. Okay. Okay. Um, and at that time, what kept you personally invested to stay positive and loving the job? Um, always the calls and, you know, I, I really got into incident command and, and being an incident commander and, and learned that all the way up through like the type three, um, incident management for like big events. But I love the house fire command, the dynamics of it. Um, the, the political side of the job did wear on me a lot. I had some, some issues with that, but I never really, uh, you know, there never really was a time where I dreaded going to work. You know, it was, mm-hmm. it was always pretty positive because it was like, I could block that part out and focus on my little area. Okay. And, uh, and, and then that's something that's, that's a tough thing to do because so many people want to fix all the things in the department and you can't, but what you can fix is your four walls or your battalion or, um, and, and you can get bogged down in the bigger picture. And a lot of those are they're not even rooted in the fire department. They they may be rooted in the county or the city and, and it's just a trickle down issue and there's really nothing you can do about it. So you have to really weigh out, okay, I don't like this, but is there anything I can do about it? And mm-hmm. it's not that you don't voice your opinions on it, but like you can't just dwell on it and let it consume you control what you can, you know, and try to make, uh, as a battalion chief, you have to sort of be a blocker for a lot of stuff too. And like, mm-hmm. don't let stuff get down to, to that level and, and also, um, yeah, I had, I had some, some ups and downs with that, but overall, I mean, I always love the guys, always love the calls and the, and the, and the people in the, in the neighborhoods. And I went from, you know, e- extreme in the neighborhoods. I went from the poorest of the poor section to the richest of the rich sections over, you know, the course of, of my whole career. And, uh, I loved them all. Okay. All right. Um, in your opinion, what key elements or factors are needed to make a good firefighter, regardless of rank? Um, a good firefighter has to, has to be able to learn and comprehend, um, first of all. So they have to be like in sports, they say you have to be trainable. Mm -hmm. So you have to be trainable. And you have to take corrections and um, coaching um, well and not take it personally. If somebody's trying to, to get you to do something a little better, whatever, you got you to gotta, um, be able to receive that and, and process it without thinking that they're just on you for, for you know, personal reasons or whatever. Um, and then, um, obviously, you have to be fit and, and be able to to do the job. So you have to get competent at your skills 
and uh um a lot of people want to move up too fast like they they want to they don't take the time to learn all the ins and outs of the basic parts of the job and then they want to sign up for leadership class and it's like it's okay to take leadership class but if that's all you're taking it's like i need your job is to force the door you know now mm -hmm. i want you to be a good leader too but if you want to be a good leader long time and you're going to lead people who force a door then you need to know how to force the door <laughs> so yes, that sir. you can either teach them or uh, and at a certain point you know you start to lose some of those skills because you're not doing them all the time and your focus is on other stuff but you have to know enough to know when something's going wrong and and who can and who can't do what so um, you don't have to stay the expert in all of those, but you still have to stay connected enough to, to understand. And you can't command a fire as a chief with the only basic firefighter skills you have is what you learned in recruit school. You've had Absolutely. to have to keep up with the new breathing apparatus technology, the new thermal imaging technology. You have to know that stuff in order to be able to lead, because if you don't, you don't make good decisions. Absolutely. Absolutely. Spot on, Chief. Spot on. Um, so I'm going to kind of shift gears a little bit. The Georgia Smoke Diver Program, and correct mm -hmm. me if I'm wrong, did you have a a part in creating that? No, or... um, I didn't. I didn't help create it. Um, I attended it in '86, and it was already established. It was established in '78, and became an instructor. Um, as soon as, as soon as I completed it, you have to complete it first in order to be an instructor. So I started mm -hmm. going back to help. And when I say I was an instructor, you know, the first five years I was building smoke and, and fire. And I actually ended up being the, the lead PT instructor pretty quick. But other than that, you know, I was like supporting the, the, the operation. Um, I did that from 86 to 95 and had moved up by 95 I was running some of the drills and and all then we shut down for a 10-year period the fire academy didn't want to do the class anymore and then in um the last class we had in 95 I was actually in charge of the class with a couple of other guys because the guy who had been in charge wasn't able to be there and then we went on that 10-year break and then uh, me and Brent Hollander and, uh, a couple of other guys that were from, from back in those days, we brought the program back in 2005. And at that point I was in charge of the whole, um, program as, as the, the IC and what we call the smoke daddy, which is basically like the drill instructor, you know, the lead like drill instructor. Okay. And, okay. Uh, and still, I'm still involved in it. I haven't missed a class. Um, I haven't missed a class since I went through class in 86. I missed a couple of days of a couple of classes when I was in recruit school in Atlanta. But other than that, I've been to every one. And uh, just recently, uh, two classes ago, I passed off the smoke daddy role to a guy named Jason Casto, who is... Uh, I think he's about 10 years younger than me and it was a good time i had taken this uh fire engineering spot and the main reason was i'd retired and i wasn't running calls every day and that position 
needs to be somebody who's still connected with the street. And so I still remain as the, as the IC and run the, run the class. Um, but, um, I'll give a speech now and then and help out here and there, but for the most part, I'm just helping run the class and keep it, you know, keep it going. And, uh, we got, we have about a hundred instructors that come back. Nobody's paid. It's an all, um, volunteer assignment and volunteer meaning most of them are paid firefighters, but they volunteer to teach and, uh, they do it cause they love it. It's a, it's a give back kind of thing. And we're a 501 C three. So, uh, um, nobody makes a dime off the class. It's just a total investment back into the students that come. Okay. And, so yeah, still going. Then we have two other programs we have, uh, that are affiliated with us is the Indiana smoke divers and the Oklahoma smoke divers. And then all other smoke diver programs that are around, there's a, there's 17, 18 of them. Um, they're all different. And so there's no, you can't really say, okay, I went, I went through the smoke diver program and it'd be the same as another one. Some of them are two days, some of them are four days, some of them are five, eight hour days. And then ours is like 60 hours, uh, you know, 12, 14 hours a day. So they're right. all different. Right. They're all, right. They're all different, but the three of those are all affiliated in the same. And there's other ones that are really good also, um, that are out there and, uh, but they're all different. They're, okay. they're all slightly different. Some are more, ours is more training and testing your ability. Um, and some are just scenario test pass fail. There's not a lot of training. You, you get experience from going, mm -hmm. but there's not a lot of teaching going up. It's just like, all right, here's your group. Here's what you got to do. Go. And then you go, which is, it's good, but it's just different. Right. Right. Um, Can I ask how did that, program come about back in this like what what occurred in the 70s or who was like hey i have an idea okay so um there was a, a fire chief in lagrange georgia named cortez lawrence who um had seen he had worked for the illinois fire service institute and when he was there he was working on like an scba confidence uh course and then he heard about the florida smoke diver program that was started in the seventies and they had some people that, that, uh, I can't remember which country it was, but it's one of the European countries that still has smoke divers. Um, I can't remember which one it is escaping my mind, but somebody from their organization had gone and gone through some of that training, which was like very advanced breathing apparatus training mm -hmm. and, uh, how to rescue yourself and that kind of stuff. And they brought that back and made some modifications to it. It's very military-like. And uh, so this guy, uh, Cortez Lawrence, he was, um, he, was a, he was a Marine, left the Marine Corps and re-enlisted into the Army during Vietnam and ended up being a captain in the Army. And uh, um, so he, you know, he had combat experience and he had been through like some special forces training um, in the army. And so he kind of merged the Florida class with some of what he learned in the army and created his own, um, his own class there in 78. Okay. And, and he sent like the first, I think the first six or seven instructors went through the Florida program and then came back and then 
handpicked a group of instructors to put through the first class. And then, you know, then it went from there and he was only really heavily involved in the program for a couple of years and then passed it off. He ended up, um, moving to Auburn, Alabama and becoming the deputy public safety director in Auburn, Alabama. He started spending time getting his education, ended up getting his, his uh, doctorate there. And he ended up the end of his career. He was with the, uh, um, U S fire administration in, in, uh, in Maryland. And so he, uh, he did that. And he also ran, uh, if you ever heard of the, uh, um, center for domestic prepares, preparedness. Yes. He ran that for several years in as, Aniston as the director. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And, I've uh, taken a couple classes in Aniston. Yeah. He actually passed away at the national fire Academy, uh, at work. Um, he, he ended up, uh, he had a lot of medical issues from injuries from, um, from getting shrapnel and getting shot and all that. And so he had, he had some mobility issues and all, um, over time as he got older, some of that stuff came back, but he ended up having, having a heart attack and, and died right there on the campus. And, uh, he's buried at Arlington cemetery. He got a full military, uh, funeral at Arlington. So, uh, that was pretty cool. Yeah. We just, I just had a memory pop up with some pictures a few weeks ago of, uh, of us being up there for, for his funeral. Okay. So, uh, um, yeah, great guy. Um, he, he came back and what was funny is he was kind of a bigger guy. Um, he raced motocross, which was kind of funny given his size and, uh, around probably 90, 91, 92, we decided to, to incorporate a skills obstacle course as part of our PT, but the PT was brutal back then. Like, you know, you, you had an hour of nothing but PT in your gear, push up, sit up, start over, start over, start over. And it was a full hour. And, uh, um, so the, the person that was in charge of the class at the time decided to implement this is like when a lot of the ada stuff was coming out and all and he was under some pressure with the fire academy like why are y'all doing push-ups and gear and why are y'all doing this so we came up with this obstacle course and it was very concerning because it was like are we going to maintain the the level of difficulty by having this obstacle course and so cortez came down and uh, he was still as passionate about it and you know in in 92 91 92 and him and I suited up and ran our obstacle course together to test it out, to see okay. how it was. And of course we made some adjustments based off of that. We were like, this was too easy. This was, and what we found out was it was a great tool, but we didn't, we didn't wear you out, uh, as much as the regular PT. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we're doing the PT to wear you out. That's the whole purpose of it. We're not trying to get you in shape because we're trying to get you to a place that's tough to make decisions and there's adversity and stuff to overcome. So we ended up now we have a combination of, we have some PT, uh, to get going that kind of gets you blood going, warming up. And there's a lot of repeats and start overs and it's mountain climbers and pushups and that kind of stuff. And then you do the obstacle course after that, but, okay. but you, but you don't do an hour of, 
of PT and the obstacle course, you know? Okay. Okay. We have it timed out because the obstacle course takes you about 40, about 40 minutes to do it. And you're doing it on air, you know? Oh, okay. But it's very repeatable skills. Like you're forcing a door, you're searching a room, you're dragging a hose, um, you're climbing ladders, you're throwing ladders, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So it's a good, it's a good use of the time to get skills, um, improved. Okay. All right. I just, I've always wanted to so, know yeah, how, how it came about. Was, Cortez was the man and, uh, he was a great dude and, and made a lot of contributions to the fire service, um, you know, throughout his whole career. He actually became, when he got up to Emmitsburg, uh, he's a history buff. And so, uh, that's right beside Gettysburg mm-hmm. and he got very involved in Gettysburg and became a tour guide. Like he took the test and, and like, you got to know everything. You got to be like on your A game to, to do that. And, uh, and so, uh, one of the last things I did with him, um, probably, probably two, two or three years before he died was uh, I was up there in a national fire Academy class and, uh, went to see him and, and, uh, he wanted to take, take me and another Atlanta chief over to Gettysburg. So he drove us over in his personal car and gave us about a three hour personal tour. We drove from site to site and he got out and, and told us what happened and, and everything. So, uh, that was pretty cool. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. All right. Like I said, I've always wanted to know how that came about. So now I know, um, your 2023 FDIC speech, mm-hmm. I can tell you, uh, I was on shift the, the day it was released on social media and I was having, I was having a bad day. Uh, I was just frustrated with, uh, long story short, lack of passion in certain areas of my department and a captain of mine or a cap, uh, a captain, uh, not of mine, but, uh, a captain on the same shift as me forwarded me that video. Um, my question to you is where did the idea and the notion and the heart of that speech come from? Because I could tell you after listening to it, it fired me right back up. It was like, that's what I needed to hear. So where, where did all that come from? Um, 37 years of working for three different organizations and being involved in, uh, FDIC for 25 years, being an instructor, um, having a relationship with chief Halton, um, for 18 years. And, uh, um, my goal, my goal with that was, it was really, it was, it was, it was a difficult goal, um, because we unexpectedly lost Bobby, mm-hmm. um, who was known for his, you know, um, passionate, uh, emotional speeches. And, and, uh, so my goal was to, to accomplish three things in that 20 minute span. And, uh, it was, it was well, well thought out and calculated in that regard in that I had to pay tribute to Bobby, um, for all his contributions, his friendship, his mentorship and all that. And, um, I had to have a message because the FDI speech always has a message 
Right. So there had to be a message in it. It couldn't just be a tribute to Bobby because that would have, it would have been okay, but it would have been a letdown for all the three or 4,000 people that were in there in the room to be like, Oh, well, you know, good, good shout out to Bobby and, you know, respect and all that. So it had to be uh, a tribute to Bobby. It had to have a message tied into that tribute. And then at the same time, I had to establish myself as the new guy. And, uh, so if you, if you were to go back and listen to it again, you see all three of those things happening and then a tie back into Bobby at the end. Mm -hmm. So, but yeah, it was, it was all, it was, uh, it was all, you know, it, it, I didn't know I was going to do that of course, until after Bobby died. So it was like January before, um, there was a plan for me to be the next guy, but it was supposed to happen in two or three years. And so I basically had from January until, uh, about mid February to really have that nailed down because there's production pieces of it. There's graphics, there's sound, there's all that stuff that has to go to the crew so that they know, um, you know, the timing of everything and all so I had to put it, had to put it together pretty quick, but I had it all written down. Um, and, uh, only had, only had one person look at it and edit it, which was Diane. And, uh, she was a good sounding board and I sent it to her and I said, Hey, take a look at this. Tell me what you think. And, uh, uh, you know, and I'm not, I'm not the, the, the best at punctuation and stuff. And I knew it needed to be, be right for, right so that I could rehearse it and all that stuff. And, uh, it's a 20 minute speech. I sent it to her. She opened it. And about 22 minutes later, she, uh, she hit the video call and I opened it up and she was in tears and she goes, don't change a word. And I was like, okay, that's it. Yes. Cause you never know. I mean, I, you know, anything I write, I'm like, I'm pretty critical of, I'm like, ah, it's not perfect, but what do you think? And I always bounce it off of her mm-hmm. or somebody when they come back and say it's perfect. Then I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm happy with it. So yeah, it was all from the heart for sure. And oh, it was, definitely. it was, uh, you know, I think for so, somebody made the comment, uh, to me, I didn't know how impactful it would be and all, but somebody came up afterwards and said, uh, everybody is going to understand that speech at some point in their career. They either totally understand it or they're so new that they don't have any context to put it on, but at some point they will. Absolutely. I think about the only people that may not get a hundred percent out of it would be a one or two year guy. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because everybody's been through something. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I was, I was happy to do it, but I was glad it was over. Um, especially, you know, with, uh, we had Bobby's family there sitting right in front of me and it was tough. It was a tough, uh, one to get through, but, uh, I got a lot of good feedback on it and it was the message I wanted to get out. And, uh, you know, I think it was relatable to a lot of people. So yes. So relatable to a lot of departments. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. It was, 
you were preaching what I call it. you were I was sitting in church I was sitting in the pew I was preaching, listening preaching without being being religious without being religious right right I mean you hit so many key points so, uh, uh, yeah I, I can't describe it it's what it's what a lot of and I don't care what rank you are from the top down uh uh from the top down you know and re- reverse order everything that you stated was was 100 percent factual um so you think for next year i might need the amen choir up there with me in the organ hey that'd be fine too that would be fine i'm telling you chief that was that was a hell of a speech for thank sure you. um my question and it, only if you want to answer it after uh, the the days weeks following that speech have you received i don't want to say backlash but I'm, your speech to me called out a lot of either chief officers, company officers, firefighters who are what I call in that complacent alley, who have forgotten what the mission is, who have forgotten who we are here to serve. Uh, ha- have you gotten any anything no, from everything, that? Everything I've gotten has been positive, and a lot of what you said I've heard, you know, dozens of times, and. Um, one of the, one of the biggest lines that was very intentional in that speech was that a lot of people, um, a lot of people spend a lot of chief officers, company officers, whatever, spend a lot of time blaming some of our issues on PTSD and it's easy to deflect and say, you know, oh, they must have had a bad call or whatever. But mm-hmm. the people I talked to and all, and again, I didn't want to take anything away from real PTSD. But there are a hell of a lot more people that struggle with bad management decisions, unfair promotions, uh, and the day-to-day grind of lack of leadership causes people way more problems than any cause. Yes, sir. And, uh, and, and I'm not taking anything away from the bad call because it affects people different ways. Some, some people inherently handle it better than others. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's not a bravado thing. It's just true. It's like some people handle adversity better than others. And typically that's based off of a couple of things. One is your, is your nature and your how much adversity you've been through before which is what smoke divers is all about that's what it's training you for and uh some of it is your support network of a strong family life a strong station life a strong department culture and if you have if all of that is good and you um you know maybe you have a strong uh uh church affiliation and that's another group so that there's like there's not any one magic thing but if you have three or four of those and they're like really good then when you have some personal trauma or a bad call or whatever you're able to deal with it um uh you're able to deal with it and and do you know do good stuff and uh if you don't if any one of those legs or uh are broken then uh um you're not able to deal with it 
Right. And so that's what I wanted to point out is like, yeah, the call's bad, but the call itself is not why you can't deal with it. It's not having one of those other legs in the system mm-hmm. for, for the majority of mm-hmm. people. So, uh, so yeah, I wanted to get that out and I immediately got some calls on that and some people have already written articles and quoted that and, uh, and it opened up the discussion, you know, because obviously it's hard to look in the mirror and say that you're the cause of some of the problems that your department's having. Absolutely. And, uh, and you know, I just wanted to get that conversation going because I think that's an important, we can't ignore that piece of it, you know, yeah, um, cause it's, it's a part of the solution. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and me being a firefighter, a lot of it, a lot of the issues within your organization, to me, stems from bad leadership. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let me grab this cord right here. My yeah, no problem. Up. No problem. All right. I'm good. Okay. You're good. I got you're a good. low battery alert. I didn't want to shut off on you. Yeah, so so uh, yeah, I hope that that res- <clears throat> I know it resonated with a lot of a lot of people and uh and i hope that actually believe it or not um about an hour after the opening ceremony was over i was in the hallway outside of the auditorium uh, of the ballroom and uh, a young woman came up to me she was probably uh maybe early 20s And she said, chief, I'm about to start my master's program. And after listening to what you said, I am going to do my, my research is going to be on that, that issue of how bad leadership affects the mental health of an organization. And, uh, and so that was pretty good. And so she actually emailed me uh, a few weeks ago and showed me where she was enrolled and, and getting started. And I was like, well, make sure you send me a copy of your, uh, of your yeah. research. Yeah. So yeah, she was doing some psychology stuff and that's what she really wanted to, to focus on. So yeah. And this, you know, it doesn't mean that, that all those people are, are bad necessarily, you know, the, those leaders, sometimes they don't realize what they're, they're doing sometimes it's intentional there are people who do things intentional but i think a lot of a lot of times it's just uh a lack of attention and understanding of how impactful a lot of that stuff is and you know and i i i always say that the you know the the bad call you run is an is a is an acute issue it's like it's like getting stung by a bee or something and then you got to take some action to, to get rid of that. But if you're in a toxic environment and not even toxic, just maybe it's just not great. It doesn't necessarily have to be totally toxic. It's a s- systemic effect over a long period of time. Right. And it, and it, uh, you know, it, it messes with you. Um, no, absolutely. With your passion, it messes with your, your drive. And, and, you know, that's one of the rules of leadership is, is like, you have to trust, you have to have trust. First of all, that is the most important piece of it. And if you don't have that trust then everything else is going to be 
like really, really slow to accomplish. And, uh, and it's not going to be fun. You know, you're still yeah. have fun running the call, but after that you're like, that's it. Yeah. You know, you're like kind of done. And, and you, you, you go into a, uh, you go into a self-preservation mode of, uh, you don't want to take too many risks because you know, you're going to have to deal with whatever. And so you see it, you know, if you're, if you're like a command officer level and you're going to a staff meeting and everybody in the room's agreeing with the chief, there's something wrong. There should be disagreement on almost everything and details that are talked through and worked out. Um, it doesn't mean that you, you end up hating each other or whatever, but like, if you say you're going to, you want to go to, um, this staffing level or this schedule or whatever, somebody has to be in the room that's going to say, have you considered that it's going to affect this and point out that issue? And you're, you're, you're not being, uh, um, disobedient. I mean, that's what you want. And I always compare it to like, I might not agree with you, but I don't want you to get hit by a bus. Right. And so even if I disagree with you and I see that you're walking out in the street, I might not even like you, but if I see you're walking out in the street, I'm going to be like, Hey, 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 and I'm going to grab your arm and try to pull you back from that bus or get your attention so that you don't get hit by that bus. Um, a lot of people box themselves into a situation where their people don't really want to say anything if the bus is coming. That's right. And they let the bus right. metaphorically, they let the bus hit them. And then the organization has to deal with it. And that's bad for you. I mean, you want as, as a member of your department, you want your chief to be the most successful chief in the world mm -hmm. because that makes your life better. Mm -hmm. And so by being honest with them and telling them, that they need to consider these other things you're doing your part. And, and when you don't have the trust, then, then you just have the bobbleheads in the room agreeing with everything the chief said. Uh, you know, I remember we had a chief one time that, uh, made some very high level promotions and, uh, shocked everybody with who they put into place. And so one of the retired guys asked this chief said, are you sure that so-and-so is capable is competent enough to be a deputy chief and this chief's exact words were i'm not worried about competent i want loyalty <laughs> and it's like dude you need both you need yes yes you need but but what is you know I think his definition of loyalty was he would support whatever he said. He exactly he was loyal My to him. My definition of loyalty is I care enough about you to tell you that you're about to mess up. I'm not always right. Mm -hmm. And you may have more information or you may know more than I do, but I have an obligation as a loyal member of your staff to tell you if I think something's not going to work. Right. Right. And, 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 I have and a, then I have a duty <clears throat> to carry out whatever you come up with. Right. Right. And I like that because a lot of chiefs, when you when you do that respectfully, they see you as a threat when you're not a threat. Like and I always say this, you don't want your your, your friends, your true friends. You don't want your true friends to be yes men. You want a true friend is going to tell you when you're messing up 
when you need to slow down, things of that nature. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, and you know, it, it, if you don't speak up, then how can you have the trust of your guys that you're supervising? But there's a balance, you know, there are people who are chronic complainers on everything. Mm -hmm. You know who that is, but you can't lump everybody in the same category. You gotta, you gotta look and see, okay, well this, this station officer, man, they accomplish a lot. Their stuff's on time all the time. They do good. I haven't had any complaints on calls and he's bringing, he's telling me something that I don't like, but I need to think about it because there's gotta be some validity, validity to it. Or why would he be bringing it? Now, if you just disagree with everything every day, you know, you got to pick and choose what's important to, yes. to bring up and not to be cliche ish, but like you need to have some, uh, they say, don't bring a problem without a solution. And that's true, but that's somewhat cliche. It's like, you might not have a solution, but you need to be prepared to have the discussion about what the solution should be and, and be open with it. And, uh, and you really need to think things through and, decide if it's worth, you know, bringing up or not. Is it just your personal preference that you're fighting for or does it really impact the organization? And, you know, right. That'd be something like, you know, are we going to go with, uh, Rocky boots or thoroughgoods? <laughs> you know, yes, you know that, that, that ain't really worth fighting over. Right. As long as they're paying for them. That's right. Pick and your battles time. If you're really that picky, then you can go buy your own and you're not going to get in trouble. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, that, that you, you don't want to take that kind of stuff up, but when you're talking about, you know, assignments and policy and discipline and all those things, then you got to be really careful because you can destroy, you can destroy the trust and you can, um, you can make waves for, for you folks had another chief, you know, along those lines that like, like you said earlier, I had a pretty good reputation with the, you know, 99% of the folks that I worked with in my battalions, but he wanted me to just be a regurgitator of his plan Mm -hmm. or whatever and all. And so it's a balancing act. And, uh, you know, you're like, you're in between the management and the operation side of the organization. And so you have to be really careful. And like I told him, you know, privately, I'd be like, chief, I see where you're going with this and I can help you get there. But I've got 20 years here of the culture and the experience the way you're going about getting there is not going to go over well. So I'm more than willing to help you because I I think you're right. I think we do need to go there, but we just need to take a different road and we got to slow down and go this way and do these things. But they, you know, a lot of times you want instant gratification. And so his expectation was that I would just go and tell everybody how great it was going to be. And I'm like, if I do that chief, then I lose what you're trying to get from me. Mm-hmm. And if I, it, they, they're going to know, you know, yeah. that firefighters will know. Right. Right. 
Right. And so I'm trying to help you out here. It's like, I'm not against you, but I, let me help you because I know the culture. You know, this was somebody who came from another organization, which is, is tough sometimes because you don't know. And uh, if you, that's, that's another thing is that as a leader, sometimes in a big organization, you want things to change too fast. And, and you can, uh, you can say it and say, everybody's got to do it and they will be the best actors in the world at when you're around making sure that it looks like we're doing exactly what you want. But as soon as you turn around, then they're right back to doing things the same, same way. And that's, that's not what you want. Right. And so you got to sort of, you have to make the people who are going to be imp implementing the changes, they have to believe in it first. You know, it can't just be a memo effective immediately, you know, blah, 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 blah. Cause it never, it never really works. Absolutely. Uh, especially Absolutely. on complex issues. Like if you're changing tactics or you're changing, you know, the way you do things, uh, um, you got to really think that out and have an implementation plan. And you, you gotta, you gotta almost look at it like a marketer, you know, like if, uh, if a new product's coming out, you know, you have to design it in a way where it's attractive. You have to let some people test it out and see if it's really going to work. Mm -hmm. And then you tweak it, but you got to include the department in the process. You can't just come in and say, we're going to do this from now on. And that's why people would get in trouble all the time. You know, uh, Phoenix, when Brunacini was in Phoenix, they had these volumes, you know, operations, uh, SOPs and administrative SOPs and chiefs would request those. They had a person that their job was to make copies and ship them out all over the country. And they would try to implement Phoenix's policy word for word in Atlanta or in Miami or wherever it was. And then they'd be like, Hey, this ain't working. It's like, you know, we always joke, we'd be like, well, it would have been nice if you'd have taken Phoenix out and actually put our department on the. <laughs> yes, sir. But, but you, that's not even enough because the Phoenix policies were developed with the union, with the Phoenix firefighters through a process that their culture was built into it. If that's not your culture, it won't work. And so it can be a template. It can be a starting point. And you could say, you know, okay, well, these are the, these are the goals we want to accomplish. How would we do this? And you might take pieces of it, but you, you just can't plug and play another SOP into your organization that has a different culture. Right. One, there's no buy-in it's forced. And then the other is some of the terminology might not even be the same. And then if you're reading that and Phoenix calls something, X and you call it Y and you got X in your SOP. What does that tell the average guy about how much you care about that policy? Mm -hmm. So why am I going to invest in that policy? You don't even care enough to call it what we call it. Right. Right. You're pretty much like copy and pasting it pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. So a uh, lot of, lot of stuff to consider there. And, uh, um, and everybody makes mistakes, you know, um, there's no perfect fire chief. Obviously some are better than others. And, and when I say fire chief, it really is company officer, anybody that's in charge. Um, nobody's perfect. People are going to make mistakes, but you want to have the relationship with your folks so that if you do make a mistake, they know it's not intentional mm -hmm. and that you take responsibility for it. And, you know, and you learn from it. 
Yeah. And, and that's one of the biggest ways to build trust is to show your vulnerability that you're not perfect. Yeah, absolutely. I told my, I told my, my boss now at, uh, or actually it was Bobby, um, back then, uh, it was a couple months before he, before he uh, passed away, he got upset about something. We, we made a decision on something and didn't include him. And of course he was under a lot of medication and stuff. So I think that had a lot to do with it. We had never had a crossword and he was really upset about, uh, something that we made a decision and didn't include him. And it like in the scheme of things, it was nothing. Mm -hmm. And there was no adverse impact, nothing. We just decided not to bother him with it because we knew he was, you know, going to the hospital that day. Right. And he went off the rails. And, uh, so I turned it on him and I said, uh, I said, well, boss, I said, and I kind of said it like I was mad. I said, I said, well, I, let me tell you something. And he got quiet. He said, what? And I said, this won't be the last time I screw up. <laughs> and he started laughing and then he it's totally true. changed his tune. Yeah, I took true. the wind out of his sails. You know? Right. I was like, Hey, I'll fix it. Tell me how to fix it. Like if you don't want it done that way, then I will, I did it. I will make the phone calls. I will tell them that I misspoke and I, you know, I got, uh, you know, I said, I'm not going to throw you under the bus. I will take the heat. And of course, you know, he was like, nah, it's okay. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I totally get it because it, it reminds me of uh, in my organization, our prior fire chief, I was, I mean, I'm, I'm not afraid to admit anything. I was literally afraid to death of him. Like he comes in the room, I'm quiet, I'm silent. But then as I grow and we have a, a, a different chief now um, under our command, I look at him as he's human. He's a regular man like me who he puts his pants on the same way, one leg at a time. And we yep. need to understand that chiefs are human. They will make mistakes. But the biggest takeaway for me is, a chief needs to be willing to admit those that 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 I I am at fault at this and take the blame because it's it's, it's part of being a man. Right. That's right. Yep. You got to take responsibility, show your vulnerability, and then people will trust you more because they they know you're authentic. And, yes, sir. Uh, that, that's yes, sir. a huge piece of leadership is being authentic and uh, and to some degree. Um, you know, you may even take the heat for some of your people, mm -hmm. um, in some cases, because you know, they're the same, they're going to make, you know, they're going to make a mistake here and there. And, uh, um, you know, you, you're, you may not let it go per se, but you might not escalate it to what it could be. And then you have a private conversation somewhere. We used to call it, take it to the hose tower. And that's back from the sixties when they used to beat the crap out of each other. If they had a disagreement, the guys just went to the host tower and they fought. And then once you fight, it's over. It's over. Right. And you recover quickly. Then you become friends again. It's just like mm -hmm. a schoolyard. Mm -hmm. you know, well, you can't do that because of the HR policies and stuff now. Right. And so, right. But you can talk. Right. You can still go to the host tower, shut the door or go in the parking lot and have the heart to heart. This kind of, Nothing's ever off the record, but it's kind of off the record mm -hmm. and, and just kind of have it out and get it all on the table, get it over with. So you can move on. Right. And don't hold a grudge. Right. Right. That's the hardest thing to do is when you do have a, something like that happen, you got to be like, you know, as long as they're willing to be like, 
yeah, I'd probably do that different, you know, whatever. You you can't hold those little things over people's heads for their mm-hmm. whole career. And mm-hmm. that's another mistake is like you and I work as firefighters at the station together and you do something to me that I don't like. It might have been a joke. It might have been whatever. And then fast forward 20 years. Now I'm the fire chief and, and you're a captain and I see your name and I'm like, put him at this station. <laughs> you're a totally different person now. Right. You know, and right. you see that happen a lot. And when you have yes, a sir. culture like that, man, it's very toxic. Very toxic. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I also want to add to um, uh, firefighters are quick to judge, jump. You know, they, they're quick to play judge, jury, and executioner. But sometimes you do have a chief who will take a bullet for his department and not, mm-hmm. and it's not known. So I want firefighters to understand too that sometimes your chief is taking the heat on some things he doesn't even want you to know about. So you always need to look at him as like, you can't, you can't be quick to judge because we don't know what they have to deal with all the time as well. Right. Look for patterns, not one time events. I always say that to the guys at the station. It's like, you know, I'm making my rounds as a battalion chief. I walk in the station, you're sitting there at two o'clock watching TV and laid back in the chair or whatever. I'm not judging you because it's two o'clock in the afternoon, but about the fifth or sixth time I come by and you're in the exact same spot, then I might have questions, you know, mm-hmm. um, cause I don't know that you just ran 15 calls, did a workout. First time you ate was at one thirty, and then you're chilling out for a minute, watching something on TV. You might be done for the day. You might, you know, um, I don't know that. I might know it if, you know, if, if everything's perfect and I've had, you know, my ear on everything and I know what's happening, but like, you might've had a heck of a time. I'm not looking for a one, one or two time thing. I'm looking for the guy who's always in the same spot. I don't never see him working. I I might, if I come at two, he's in that chair. If I come at seven at night, he's in that chair. If I come at nine in the morning, he's in the same chair. Then I'm like, what's going on at this station? (laughs) absolutely and i and i still am open to the fact that i'm wrong because i might just it could be coincidence Mm -hmm. you know but Mm -hmm. i might ask i might ask the captain that guy ever move (laughs) (laughs) you know Uh, so yeah there's a lot there's a lot that you don't know and uh, there's a lot that you can't know so you do have to but what i find is if you establish trust Yes, you're going to take some heat in some situations, but for the most part, if you have strong trust, people give you the benefit of the doubt. And maybe you totally screwed up, but they're still going to be like, ah, I don't, I don't know. Maybe there has to be something more to this. That ain't like him. Mm-hmm. That's what you want them to be saying. And Absolutely. Then, and then if they find out that it was totally unlike their perception of you and you did screw up, then you just got to, you got to be like, Hey, I screwed up. You know, um, and that's hard to do. And part of the reason it's hard to do is it's easy to have a relationship with your company officer and your crew because you're together all the time. The fire chief is never together with you other than a call or he stops by or you have a meeting or something. The battalion chief is kind of in between that, like the battalion chief you usually see maybe once a day or once every other shift or, or unless you have calls. So they're a little closer, but they're still, it's not as easy as a 
battalion chief to establish trust as it is for the company officer. And that's why you got to, as a battalion chief, have so much contact with the company officer because your trust comes through them a lot of times. And then same with the fire chief. The fire chief needs to have time with the, the division chief and the division with the battalion so that you have that communication and, and you build that trust. But you can't really be effective as a fire chief, even a big organization, if you're not seen. You know, and, and everybody knows you can't be there every day. Right. Every day. You don't have time to answer everybody's questions every day. You got to rely on the system mm -hmm. to do that. But you still need to stop by and make sure you hit every station, every shift several times in the course of a year. And of course, the smaller the department, the easier it is to do that. When I was uh, Chamberlain's aide, we had a plan where we would go out on certain days and hit stations. And the goal was every station, every shift once a year. And that was with, you know, 34 stations. We never accomplished it because of circumstances, mm -hmm. but we were probably 75, 80%, you know, all right. And, You're trying. And that was important just, mm -hmm. just to stop by. And, you know, your plan is where we're just going to stop by for 30 minutes and three hours later, you're still there because people got questions. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> and he wouldn't leave, you know? Right. Right. So we were going to hit three stations today and we only hit one. So now we're behind schedule. So. Okay. Um, uh, and uh, last question for you, in your opinion, what do you think the American fire service can improve on? Um, I think we really need to look at um, our own individual communities and decide what's the best model for our community and not necessarily have to follow what everybody else is doing. And uh, um, here's an example of that. In, in 92, when I went to Atlanta, um, we had one rescue in each battalion that ran all the medical calls. Okay. So one rescue running a whole battalion's medical calls. We changed that and went to EMTs on all the engines. So the closest unit ran the call mm -hmm. and we added some paramedic units and other supervisors and all that. And we changed, we still don't run the EMS transport at all. Um, in other communities, they forced EMS and fire together and had everybody doing everything. And I've, I've seen like, uh, one of the suburban counties, they had probably the best EMS service around. It okay. was, it was a County run, but they had their own command structure. Uh, they had their own EMS chief officers and all, well, they got a new chief and the new chief said, well, fire and EMS got to merge. So they merged two totally separate cultures. They sent the officers on the EMS side to like a six week fire school and then expected that they could be officers on the fire side too. And fast forward 15, 20 years, they have private ambulances now. Right. It didn't work. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And then you've got departments like the colony who are hiring people just to ride fire trucks and hiring people just just to ride EMS. Yep. And I don't think there's any one right way. It's just like you said, like the SOP doesn't work over here. It works over here. Um, I think there's opportunity for any of those combinations of systems to work. And, um, when, when I, when I got hired in 92, I think 600 people took the test for 32 spots. Um, they're struggling now. They can't even keep up with attrition, um, between people quitting and people retiring. Mm-hmm. Um, recruit school's 22 weeks or something cra- You know, it, it's, it's like six, eight months. Right. It ends up being a year because of delays and on all mm-hmm. this stuff. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you can't train enough people to, to keep up with the attrition. So you're short staffed, you're, you're running into issues. So I think the culture piece has to be looked at individually by department and not an overall strategy for the whole country. Cause the goal is to provide the best service possible. It really doesn't matter what the model is mm-hmm. as long as it works. Mm-hmm. That's right. And, uh, um, I, I saw somebody made a post about the colony the other day and they said, setting the, what he's doing out there, setting the fire service back 30 years. I don't think so because guess what? He doesn't have attrition. His people are happy mm-hmm. and they're delivering excellent service. Mm-hmm. So it's like, to me, you're arguing over what brand of boot to purchase and, you know, don't force around peg into a triangle hole right. or a square peg into a round hole, however that saying goes. Right build your system that works that, that you can have a good system. So I think, um, I think that's one thing that needs to be looked at and don't be afraid to not follow the, the academics or the power leaders of the fire service saying that it needs to be this way. I think you can develop it for your own community and, and make it work. And then the other thing that I think we are turning a corner on is I think we went, way too far in what I call like false safety. I think we went way too far over a 20 year period, established some unrealistic expectations as far as that. And, um, I think with the new data we're getting, especially from, and, and, you know, all the best stuff ends up coming from the bottom up independent stuff. So like this rescue survey data, that's rescue. Rescue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we know now that a victim has like a 78 chance, 78% chance of survival. If we get them out in the first six minutes from when we get on the scene, every minute that goes by after that, their chances decrease. So we've put in a lot of very strict systems of we can't go in unless this is in place and we can't do this and all. We've got to transfer that decision-making back to the situation and to the people who are 
actually there if we want to be successful at rescuing. And uh, I think the data supports that. And I see, mm -hmm. I see a change in that happening right now in the, in the fire services that, okay, we, we've gone from one extreme to the other. We're so safe and so risk averse in these areas that we have hampered our operational functionality. Right. I believe we can be safe and fast and accomplish all of it through being competent, understanding what we have and not just following blanket, uh, robotic procedures. And, uh, um, and, you know, and some examples of that are there are departments who will not let their guys enter the, through the window. I mean, they have a policy. They have other departments that you don't make entry on um, what is considered a vacant structure. Mm -hmm. um, and again, that's that's situational. There's hardly there's hardly any true vacant structures in Atlanta. Somebody's living in there. Mm -hmm. um, and that doesn't mean that you are reckless, but that means that you establish some expectations. And, uh, you know, quoted Bruno a lot here is you always risk a lot to save a life. So let's do that. <laughs> let's never be in the situation to never make any risk. Right. Um, but, but let's don't be reckless on the other hand either. Absolutely. And I think some people can't balance that out in their mind. And, uh, so I think you're going to see a big change in, search policies and search practices and uh um you know there's always that west coast east coast thing about you got to search with a hose line you never search with a hose line and all that it's like it's situational not everybody needs a hose line yes you do need a hose line but there are some instances where if you know what you're what you're doing a closed door is better than a hose line that's right um so so you have to, you have to invest in your people, get them the training and then trust them to be able to make decisions on the scene or just like with bad leadership, then you get people who don't want to make decisions on the scene and all they're going to do is go strictly by the policy. They're not adaptable at all. So the person will be hanging out the window and you're not going to do anything until you get your water supply, complete your 360. Uh, get a hose line in place. And it's all, it's like, throw the damn ladder to the window. They can climb out themselves right now. That's right. That's right. You know, don't lock yourself in to being uh, that robotic thing. So I think those are two, two big things. Uh, one is real big in the organizational structure and the other is more tactically in, in our tactics. We got to get in fast and we got to get those people out if we want to save them. And if we don't, then word's going to get out that, we're not doing everything we can. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the, the public does not expect us to commit suicide, making a rescue. Right. But they do expect us to take risk. And if we get a reputation that we are no longer taking risk, then we're going to lose support. Absolutely. And it'll be a massive blow to funding. Yep. Uh, and everything else, because it's going to be like, I think it's, I didn't come up with it, but somebody said, 
you know, if we're not going to do our job, then they can have the uh, street department guys pick up the fire engine and squirt water on the exposures. Doesn't take a whole lot of special training to do that. But, you know, I even said it in my, my speech, you know, I'm against people that spend thousands of dollars training people how to fight fire and make rescues, but they won't let them do it. <laughs> so it's absolutely spot on. Absolutely spot on chief. And as far as Gump says, that's all I got to say about that. <laughs> oh, uh, chief it's, uh, yes, sir. I, I cannot, I cannot. And I express, I cannot thank you enough for accepting my invitation to coming out and doing this. Uh, a lot of nuggets have been dropped. Uh, I'm sure anybody who really truly cares about the fire service will take notes and take account of what you said, because it's a hundred percent factual. We need to get not all departments, but mo uh, a good number of departments need can learn from what you stated to get better at this because priority should always be, and should have never been not public. The That's public it. is is number one. They rely on us. They have a huge trust in us, and we need to reciprocate that back to them. Yep. That's why that's why it's known as the fire service. We provide a service. Absolutely. Absolutely. Chief, I appreciate you taking your time out of your busy, I'm sure, busy schedule to do this. Uh it's it's been great talking to you. I truly, truly appreciate you. Yes, sir, Danny. Anytime. And uh hopefully I get to meet you. Maybe you can get to FDIC next year. Yes, I will try. I'll try to do that, sir. Absolutely. All right, man. We'll stay in touch and uh good luck and uh keep me keep me apprised of of your progress yes sir i will i will do right all right if any of the listeners out there are or know of a great firefighter who embodies the principles of being a great communicator goal-oriented hardworking, humble passionate and professional regardless of rank career or volunteer contact me at student of the game fire podcast at gmail.com until next time stay focused stay committed and stay safe.